Hello, and welcome to episode three of the Nifty Fifty Show. Wow, number three. Slow but surely, right? Today, we are going to go somewhere small, and somewhere that probably thought they would have surely been more important than they are today. Which, not to be offensive, but you'll see why. Today, we are headed to South Dakota. We're headed straight north from Oklahoma to a tiny town on the Missouri River called Yankton, South Dakota. The, the inspiration for this actually came while I was flying from Utah to Ohio, and I did not know anything about Yankton, but for some reason, it stuck in my mind, and of course, I went to Wikipedia, which is one of my bestest friends, and was shocked to read how important Yankton, South Dakota was and how it actually affected global affairs. So let's get into that. So Yankton, South Dakota is relatively small, however it is relatively large for South Dakota. There are roughly 23,300 people as of the last census, which makes it the seventh largest city in South Dakota. It is the county seat of Yankton County, and it sits on the Missouri River across from Nebraska. If we think back to when rivers were really the main highways through the, the country, of course Yankton would have been one of the first cities in South Dakota that you came to. Today, it is about an 80-minute drive from Sioux Falls, which is the largest city in South Dakota, two and a half hours from Omaha, Nebraska, and three and a half hour drive from the state capital, Pierre, South Dakota. The name Yankton comes from the English pronunciation of a Sioux word. All of this really doesn't tell you much of a story about Yankton and why Yankton is so fascinating. So let's start. In 1803, the Louisiana Purchase had just happened. Thomas Jefferson had sent Lewis and Clark to go scout it out and see what had just been added to the United States. Of course, they passed by on the Missouri River and passed where Yankton would eventually be. Fast forward roughly 55 years, Minnesota gains statehood. Eventually, the Yankton Treaty was signed, which opened up eastern South Dakota for settlement. And you can see this reflected on a map today or one of those cool satellite photos at night. Most of the population of South Dakota lives in the more fertile east. However, after the Yankton Treaty was signed, Congress still refused to organize the territory politically. They probably had more pressing issues, like a brewing civil war. And this continued on uh, until 1861, when John Blair Smith Todd, who was the future president's cousin-in-law, was living in Yankton. He was the first lawyer there, and he began to campaign for territorial organization. Now, when you're related to one of the most famous politicians in the country at that time, a politician who would go on to be president, Congress is very apt to pay attention to you. Congress therefore organized the Dakota Territory, and this was all of North and South Dakota, most of Montana, and a significant portion of northern Wyoming. President Buchanan made Yankton the territorial capital. This was one of the last things President Buchanan did as president, because it was President Lincoln who chose the territorial governor, and he made William Jane the governor. Now, Governor Jane was Lincoln's personal physician and had been the mayor of Springfield, Illinois, until this appointment. I don't know if you would count, I guess it's prestigious, your territorial governor, but then you leave your cozy home in Springfield, Illinois for 
for really the Wild West. And things were just kind of ho-hum after that for 20 years until a new man showed up. A man who would become very prominent in Dakota politics, and this man was Alexander Mackenzie. Alexander Mackenzie settled in North Dakota and therefore became way more involved that side of the territory. Even today, the North Dakota state website says this about Alexander Mackenzie. says, quote, he was the single most influential person in North Dakota from 1883 to 1922. He had hundreds of friends, many of whom had accepted bribes or political positions from him. He was undoubtedly corrupt in his approach to business and politics, end quote. I guess that really tells you everything you need to know about Alexander Mackenzie. He was extremely important, and he was not afraid to use under-the-table methods to get what he wanted. Other people have called him a master of deception, both personally and professionally. In fact, he had a secret family living in New York that he would go visit, and he paid for everything, whereas he maintained his first family in North Dakota. And the first family did not know this until he had died. Must have been a very, very dramatic funeral. While Alexander Mackenzie was very important and even, what it said, the most important person, he really didn't hold any political offices except once. He was elected sheriff of Bismarck and Burley County. Even though he didn't have those ambitions, he was still popular enough to uh, be voted into office. While he was not personally ambitious towards holding the office, he made friends with people who were. He became the confidant of Territory Governor Nehemiah Ordway. Now, of course, who knows where Nehemiah Ordway lived or where he worked, but at the time, Yankton, South Dakota was still the territorial capital. Alexander Mackenzie, however, with his silver tongue, persuaded the territorial legislature to move the capital to the farther away Bismarck, what is now in North Dakota. However, the law required the assembly to meet in Yankton, and how they arranged this was they all got on a train, and as the train passed through the town, they voted on the issue. I don't know if Yankton was really hated at the time, but clearly they were more interested in partying on the train, making a quick vote, and then getting on to whatever business was next, where Alexander Mackenzie probably was supposedly going to make them rich. Who knows? Yankton, of course, was extremely upset. They'd held that position for some time. Generally, territorial capitals became state capitals. Just lots of political prestige. Any judicial appeal they made was rejected out of hand. He probably had the judges. Alexander Mackenzie probably told the judges, yeah, just ignore them. They're just whiny little babies now. And this decision sealed Yankton's fate because in 1889, when North and South Dakota were granted statehood, Pierre was chosen as the state capital. We can't really fault the people of Pierre or South Dakota or Congress or whoever made Pierre the state capital because if you look at a map, Pierre is nearly dead center in the state, which is very convenient when you have people traveling all over to do business or to go work politically in the state capital. But poor Yankton was still upset about it. In fact, it has been said that, quote, Yankton has a fine historic site and a bitter memory, end quote. 
I think you can find that on the state historical marker of the territorial capital. That's just a nice way to end that. A bitter memory. Maybe they should campaign again. I mean, they'd be a lot closer to Omaha and Sioux City, but I doubt that'll happen. Here it is. However, that is not the only exciting thing to happen in Yankton to be the mother city of the Dakotas. After they lost the capital to Pier, they became important for another reason, and that is for cement. So a new nickname arose called Cement City. Now at this time, cement had become extremely important. People had figured out how to make it strong. The secret had kind of been unburied from centuries of neglect, and cement was all important in building. Yankton has its geography to thank for this. It sits on a river, which is extremely important. You have a consistent supply of water. There were trains, so easy access. Studies of geology had indicated that there was limestone. Yankton was a natural choice for a cement plant, and it became home to the Western Portland Cement Company. Portland cement is a type of cement. It is actually the name of the most common type of cement in general use today. It is used as an ingredient in concrete, mortar, stucco, and grout. It was developed in 19th century England and named for its resemblance to a white stone from Dorset called Portland Stone. I guess not all cement is cement, some cement is Portland cement, and there are other types. But, of course, with the massive growth, you're getting through the Gilded Age and the railroad, and you're getting into the early 20th century, and building is exploding. There's high demand for cement. And so by the time Yankton was called Cement City, American-made cement was displacing imported cement. And as I said, Yankton became particularly crucial in the cement industry in the United States because of its location, the Missouri River, the local chalk, then the railroads. And when they did studies on the clay in the chalk, and they were found to be 99% pure. That's a really good result of a test. 99% pure. Probably made some really great cement. Now, there were three key players in the cement industry for Yankton. The first was Mr. Robert Yates of Omaha, Mr. William Plankinton of Milwaukee, and Mr. John Summers of England. Mr. John Summers provided a lot of the technical knowledge of running cement plant logistics because he was a former manager of a cement plant in Middlesex in England. Now, the three of them chose a site located west of Yankton, and it was about 300 acres in size. Then there was the question of employees, and they decided that employees would commute by rail to the plant. Many workers immigrated from England to Yankton. There were so many that they had a cricket team, which provided the locals with some entertainment on the weekend. The plant was built in 1890, and the first shipment of cement left the plant in 1891. And daily capacity at the beginning was about 250 barrels of semi-dry cement. So you can still go to Home Depot and buy semi-dry cement. You have to water it down somewhat, but it is kind of like a very sticky paste. But being wet or semi-wet, it is very heavy because of the liquid. But this was used still for big building projects. So you're essentially shipping ready-to-use cement from South Dakota all over. And they sent some to England, where they tested it and found that the cement had a tensile strength of 1,080 pounds per square inch. Pretty strong cement. In fact, it was awarded in 1893 the first premium award at the Chicago World's Fair. 
doesn't really say much about the people they ran against, but they became the main provider of cement for the Western United States. And I mentioned earlier that Yankton had influenced global affairs. Are you ready? Because here it is. They even supplied cement for the building of the Panama Canal. It was very well-traveled cement, and it all comes from a very small town in southern South Dakota on the Missouri River. However, despite this success and all of the headlines and the awards, the plant could not stay out of the red. It was constantly in debt. So in 1904, the plant changed ownership and closed for remodeling, and they switched from selling semi-dry cement but completely dry cement. Now this meant that you could produce four times the amount of cement, because now what you're selling out is essentially a powder that then people would have to mix on site or wherever they needed it. And so you're able to produce and ship a larger quantity of cement than if you had made it ready to use. In 1905, Mr. William Plankinton, the president, died. In the order of succession, as was common in this time, the son took over, but he was known for being, quote, less knowledgeable, end quote. And as a result, the cement suffered a drop in quality. Now, five years later, the plant was still running, but reduced tariffs had allowed for increased European competition. So even though American-made cement had displaced imported, now it was starting to become cheaper to import it as well. And this hurt because the plants always teetered on the edge of being very unprofitable. As a result, the less knowledgeable son sold a plant to a Sandusky, Ohio-based company. Now in Sandusky, Ohio, they probably were not interested in running a cement plant out in what they probably thought of as the boonies in South Dakota. So they had the plant shut down, and the machinery dismantled and shipped east to Ohio. Now this left a shell of a building that only remained for seven more years, when it was finally dismantled. As of now, only one smokestack remains, and you can find it. I have found it on Google Earth. I have not had the opportunity to travel out to Yankton, but you can still find it west of Yankton, which is fascinating. That's all that remains of a plant that made cement for many, many government projects, the Panama Canal, and it was really highly awarded. And that's all that remains of Cement City in tiny Yankton, which is wild. So next time you are flying over South Dakota and you see the map and it says you're over Yankton or you just look out your window and see it along the Missouri River, know that that is where essentially North and South Dakota were born but also that it used to be a key player in the cement industry in the entire world. And this is why that the word flyover is annoying, because it's not true. Wherever you go, there are stories like this, tiny places that seem unassuming, but then are extremely impactful in history and in the surrounding area, and even the world at large. Mother City of the Dakotas, Cement City, call Yankton what you want but it is not boring. But that concludes this episode. We're moving on eastward to other places now. Don't, don't judge a place by, by where it is. 